Have you been affected by the suicide death of a beloved friend or family member? If so, you're probably facing many unanswered questions. We hope to discuss some of them today. This is What My Son's Death by Suicide Taught Me About Life with your host, Marshall Adler. Marshall lost his own son, Matt, at the age of 32 and has since dedicated his life to talking to people who have also been affected by suicide. Now, here is Marshall Adler. Hello, I'd like to thank all of you so much for listening to our show today. And I want to tell you that I have a very, very, very special guest that's going to, uh, has agreed to be interviewed today. Her name is Hannah Jakowski. I want to make sure I, did I pronounce that correctly, Hannah? You okay. sure did. Okay, uh, let me tell you that Hannah is an amazing person. She is a very brave person. And the reason I'm saying this is that unlike many of the other guests that have been or will be on the show, I've only known Hannah for probably less than a week. And the reason I'm telling you what a brave person she is, is that she reached out to me upon learning of the radio show podcast about the loss of my son, Matt. And she, on her own, was willing to reach out. And we had a very, very, very serious discussion about my show, my journey, my loss. And she was brave enough, brave enough to open up about her journey, her story, and her loss. So what I'd like to do today is, number one, thank Hannah so much for being here. And number two, thank Hannah for being so brave to talk about her story. And what I'd like to do, start out, is just give the audience some background information. So Hannah, I would like to just ask you some background information about where you're from, where you, what do you do for a living, uh, where you live, and so people know exactly what um, your, bio, your, your biographical um, information is about. Absolutely, thank you, Marshall. So um, I was born and raised in a very small town in Northwest Georgia um, by my mother and my father and my two older siblings. And um, after high school, I moved to Florida and received a dietetics degree at Florida State University. Uh, once I graduated from there to become a dietitian, I had to get accepted into an internship program. So there was a small um, amount of time that I lived in Denver with my sister and back in Georgia with my family before moving to Chicago for my internship. Um, once I completed that, I got my first position professionally back in Orlando because I always wanted to be in Florida and I have been here ever since. I'm currently a clinical nutrition manager at a large hospital here in Central Florida um, and mainly my big goal in life is to always give back to others and to continuously learn how I can improve myself and those around me. That, that's wonderful. Actually, after the show's over, I'd like to talk to you about my dietary habits, which, which, which actually aren't that good sometimes. So maybe I get some pointers from you. It would be wonderful. But we're not here to talk about my waistline. We're, we're here to uh, talk about, obviously, your journey. And if you could just tell us why are you doing this show and who did you lose for the reason that you're here today? Absolutely. Um so I actually lost my dad to suicide when I was 22 years old. Um, it will be eight years ago this December. 
And when I lost him, I was living in my hometown at the time. So I moved to Chicago on my own, um, had to kind of begin that journey by myself. And I, what I realized when I got back to Florida is that I really hadn't said it out loud to anyone except for my immediate family and maybe three others. Um, so when I got here, uh, it was a big part of who I was and what my life was about. And I wanted to learn to be able to say that to others. And so I started looking, it probably took me two or three years of living down here to start looking um, for any kind of connection or group or somebody else that might have a similar experience. Um, And somehow I came across the Halos group. So I decided to show up. I went on my own um, on a random Tuesday and I sat in this room full of people and I didn't really we have to go around the room in the beginning and explain who we are and what we lost. And that was the very first time that I ever said it in front of strangers. And of course they didn't know that. But, um, after that class, I went back, I continued to go back for probably about six months, um, just to get more comfortable saying the same thing. I was in the room with the same people. So it started, you know, every now and then a new person would come in. Um, but I got comfortable being able to say it. And while I still am not probably where I want to be with it, Um, I'm definitely on my way and becoming more comfortable in being able to share my story because what I've realized is if I'm not the one saying it, it's not my story. It becomes others. How long did you wait until you went to the first Halos meeting? How long was that after your father's passing? That was probably close to four years. Wow, so you went four years. Did you go to any type of grief counselor, any other type of help with the loss of your dad? Absolutely. So um, immediately after my father's passing, um, my mom called emergency family counseling. (laughs) And we all went, uh, my entire family, my brother, his fiance, my sister, her husband, my mom and myself, um, we called it family counseling. We went once a week. Um, for a couple months, and then we each had to meet with a um, psychologist to be evaluated and tested, Um, and then we each had to have our own counselors, and to be completely honest with you, I did not like counseling at all. (laughs) On the one-on-one, I was okay with the family counseling. I was okay with, you know, kind of being with, with my family and understanding each other on a different level and being, you know, having to talk through some things with them was was helpful for me. But when I was sitting in there on my own, I felt that I was just repeating myself over and over. And I I wasn't really ready for that yet at the time, I don't think. And what I can think about that now, looking back on it, is a lot that I was repeating myself on were the details. And I think that that was just a stage of my grief as I was stuck in the exact times and, you know, very intricate details of everything that happened. Um, And so I felt that each week I had to go and tell the same story. And now looking back on that, that probably was not the case, but that's how I felt. Um, So when I came here, I was, it was me seeking, you know, a group of some sort and some sort of um, relief and and connection. I think because I was looking for it, I was ready. And so I think that it made, that makes all the difference in the world of, counseling and support groups and grief is sometimes you're not ready for it. And, um, I didn't really understand what that meant at the time. You know, I can totally relate what you're saying because the whole process of grief 
is so individual. There's no right. There's no wrong. There just is. It's as different as people are different. And I know that if you're not going through grief, it's hard to understand what it's about, but everybody sort of has to go through their own timeline. And, you know, as you can tell, I'm sort of a um, proactive person in the sense that I like dealing with things, including life head on, the good, bad, or the the indifferent. And I mentioned this before that uh, my wife, myself, and and, and our son, David, we all discussed that if we're going to live happy, productive, meaningful lives, we were going to have to hit grief head on. Mm-hmm. And for us, that meant going to so many different support groups. I already talked to you about Steve Smelsky, who ran the Grief Share. Mm-hmm. It was very, very helpful. Obviously, you and I had the connection with Halos, the suicide support. Uh, survivor support group, which has been unbelievably helpful. We have a individual grief counselor that knew our son Matt very well. So we've done all these things and they've helped us get through the process. And obviously this show is also part of that process because I want to try to help as many people I can to get through the process. And in the, as part of the helping others is helping me. And I think that is just the path that you have to find. And I'm glad you found yours, but I'd like to ask you, I didn't know your dad, but I'd like you to tell the similarities that your father has with me because anybody (laughs) that knows me knows that I'm a huge Buffalo Bills fan because (laughs) I'm a huge fan of Western New York. I was born and raised in Buffalo. I went to law school at Duke University, but before that I went to University of Buffalo undergrad and I've got Buffalo and Lake Erie water running through my veins. And when you and I talked and I told you that you sort of giggled and I say, well, Buffalo's sort of a funny place for sometimes <laughs> intentionally, unintentionally reasons people make jokes about Buffalo. But I want you to tell the audience why this was interesting that you were hearing me talk about Buffalo so, so with such affection. Of course. Um, so like Marshall is saying, it, it's been funny the amount of connections that we have had and the similarities, which just, kind of reassures me on what I'm doing. Um, but very odd coincidences that, that are ending up wonderful. But um, my, my father grew up from Buffalo. He was actually from Amherst, which is the part that Marshall is from. Yes. Um, went to Sweet Home High School. And he was very, very intellectual. He graduated top 10 from his class in high school at age 16 and went to college at 16 years old. Um, He went to college in Buffalo and majored in chemistry um, and did some student teaching at a high school with that as well. I know at one point he was asked to be a mathematician, um, but he didn't feel that that gave back to others. And so he applied to medical school. And I don't really know what year this was, but I do know that he was much younger than all of his colleagues. Um, And he went to upstate medical school in Syracuse. And, um, 
he met my mom through an odd connection. She was moving. Um, she's from the South and he happened to go along on a road trip and help my mom move. And that's how they met. And he ended up marrying my mom. Um, and they both stayed in Syracuse together. That's where my sister was born. So they were up there for a little bit while he was in, um, medical school. My mom did her master's in therapy. Um, and then after that, they moved to Georgia in 1984. And, um, my father was working with another physician at the time. And then both of them started their own practice the year that I was born in 1989. Um, so my dad opened a pediatric office and my mom opened a pediatric therapy that inhibited the occupational therapy, physical therapy, and speech therapy, um, to really give back to a community that was in need for that area. Um, one of the big things my dad was all about was giving back to those who, who didn't have enough. So he really advocated for um, the underinsured or the non-insured and um, was nominated by his peers to serve as the president of the Georgia chapter of the AAP. So he also did that for many years and we turned it into a family affair. We, we did a beach vacation every single year at the same time around his annual meetings. Um, and to this day, they still invite my mom to come um, because we were such a big part of, of that. Um, so that's a little bit about who my dad was. You know, it's interesting. There's so many different, I just learned, you know, my wife, Debbie is from the South, just like your <laughs> parents are. No, seriously, this is the, 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 I know it's weird. The parents are amazing here. This is incredible, but, and I'm, I'll be a little bit funny here. My mother grew up in New York City, uh, Lower East Side, right across the street from Kansas Delicatessen, very famous Delicatessen. And she said that her best friends in her whole lifetime were her friends from Buffalo. And, you know, they've got shirts in Buffalo, T-shirts that say, Buffalo, the city of no, of no illusions. And <laughs> it, it, people laugh about it, but it's true because my closest, dearest friends are my friends from Buffalo. I'm still very close to many of my high school friends, and there's just something about the people in Buffalo that make them the kindest, gentlest, most caring, giving people. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm not being paid by the Chamber of Commerce Buffalo to say this, <laughs> but it's true. It sounds like your father was like that, and it's always a place where people are very self-deprecating. They make jokes of themselves, like you know, we all, all my friends, we always just do joke that Buffalo is the. Well, I gave you some background. Bowling is very big in Buffalo. Buff Buffalo's always been the bowling capital of the world. And we used to make jokes that Buffalo is the only city where you could tell a woman's shoe size from behind. <laughs> because of the, <laughs> the, old, the bowling shoes. Bowling shoes. The bowling it's funny. <laughs> it's, it's funny that you say that because when you say making fun of yourself and bowling shoes, they both make me think of my grandfather, my dad's father, who he used to, he was noto notable for the fish flop and he would empty his pockets and it took about 25 minutes because he kept so many pins and he carried so many things in his pocket and then he would flop on the ground and do a very absurd move that was just hilarious. <laughs> and he also gave my brother a bowling ball for his birthday along with bowling shoes. So it's funny to know that that's the capital. I didn't know that. It, it really is. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, we have to take a short break here and I want to come back and sort of delve more into 
your father in the sense that I want you to uh, tell me how he was doing before he passed away. I know that's going to be um, a more serious conversation than talking about bowling shoes, but I think <laughs> uh, this is all part of the grief process to realize there's so many wonderful things that our loved ones have left us, including our sense of humor. And I know with our son, Matt, he always made me laugh. He still makes me laugh and he'll make me laugh till I take my last breath. So I think um, your father seemed like a wonderful person. And I know that if he grew up in Buffalo, he had to have a good sense of humor. <laughs> so we'll take a short break and come right back. And I'd like to learn more about your father. And we'll take a short break. Be right back. And again, thank you so much for listening. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit VoiceAmerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are tuned into What My Son's Death by Suicide Taught Me About Life. If you'd like to send Marshall Adler a question or comment that can be addressed privately or on a future program, please send an email to marshalontheradio at gmail.com. That's marshalontheradio at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's program. Thank you so much for listening, and I want to tell you we're back here and I want to have Hannah tell me as much as you can about your father and specifically he sounded like he dedicated his life to helping others being a medical doctor being a pediatrician obviously his love of helping people was epitomized by what he did he helped people feel better he helped children become adults I mean what greater efforts can somebody have than to help children that's what he did and it sounds like he was so well respected by his peers but as his daughter how do you think he was doing before his passing did you see any changes did you see any clues that things were changing um so i know you and i on our initial discussion briefly talked about this and i think that Honestly, at like I said, I was 22 years old, um, recently 22, and I was living at home. My family growing up has always 
we were known as the most accepting family. You know, we, anything that came our way, it, it wasn't, you couldn't really get a shock value out of us. We invited everyone into our home. We encouraged um, uncomfortable relationships for others. And, and so there was a lot of open discussion around uh, depression and anxiety. And I know that my dad's side, the family had always struggled with that. And um, for myself, even I, I never really experienced anything until about junior year of college. And I knew that my brother and my sister had had, you know, their struggles with, with that as well. And junior year, when it hit me, it was, you know, I, I called my dad and I was like, I don't know what's going on, but I had never made us like even close to a C in my life. I never had problems with school. And I was so worried about getting out of bed and going to class because I didn't think I could get everything done. And it would be the beginning of the semester. And I would be like, I, I'm just, I think I'm going to fail. Like, I don't think I'm going to pass this class. And so they came to visit me um, and, you know, he obviously had his own assessment, but took me in to let me get assessed by someone else. And, and it came back that, that I was really experiencing anxiety. Um, and so it was something that, like I said, was very open. It was very comfortable to talk about with my family because everyone kind of experienced it outside of my mom. Um, every family member that I have has, been diagnosed with some sort of anxiety or depression or something like that. Um, in the big picture, though, my dad, you know, he ran marathons. He was constantly helping other people. He lived a very full life, um, very involved in my, my life, my brother's life, my sister's life. Um, him and my mom were each other's best friends. You know, they didn't really have a big social circle um, because they really valued their their relationship and, and their time with their family and so each vacation we always you know invited my mom's side my dad's side whoever could come um, and so there wasn't really much change leading up to this in my eyes um, after it has happened I mean there's obviously times that we've sat down and should we have known this and and did we really l overlook something you know and so of course there there's a few instances that we can think of um, where my dad knew he wasn't feeling well. Um, and he was a very smart guy. There wasn't anything he couldn't find the answer to or research to know every in and out about it. Um, and so he knew that he had a chemical imbalance and he knew his brain wasn't working correctly. Um, I guess now looking at the other side of it, what he did not know is that he could get out of it. He felt very stuck in that. And, um, you know, I, I don't really know the exact history of if, medication changes and things like that. Um, I know that there, there were some, but I don't know really, I can't really relate to anything specifically. Um, but I do know that he was in the process of being evaluated and trying to, to fix it, but it had been some time that he had been feeling that way. So I think, you know, from a, a perspective of a daughter, it completely caught me off guard. There was absolutely I would have never thought in a trillion years that would have happened. Um, but I think that, you know, now being the, the person that I am and, and understanding a bigger picture, I think that maybe were there more signs, you know, did, could, could we have seen this differently? Maybe, but um, I'm also, I know that there's probably nothing we could have done to fix it. So did, did, did anybody in your family have any conversations because after Matt's passing, we learned things we didn't know about. We didn't, Matt never talked to us 
about ever about about taking his life. It's just not, nothing we ever talked about. If, if you obviously listen to the, for the people that listen to the first episode of this podcast, the last time I saw Matt, he was as happy and as content as I've ever seen him as an adult and as a parent that's the greatest gift you can get from your children. You just want your children to be happy and productive and leave meaning, meaningful, kind, gentle lives, which exactly was what he was doing. So to say that we were blown away, as you said also, is a complete understatement. But after the fact, we learned that Matt did, Matt did talk to many of his close friends about a suicidal ideation, never told his parents, didn't tell us, but he told his friends. And do you have any information from friends, family, anybody that your father reached out, talked, had any type of serious conversation with anybody about this? Honestly, we don't. Um, and, And the reason I feel confident in that answer is, like I said, my dad's inner circle was us. You know, he had some very close friends from medical school. You know, he he had, my mom was his absolute biggest confidant. Um, and then his children were next in line. And he was very involved in the community. Um, but there was never a, a prior leading up to the episode conversation about contemplation or ideation. Like there, there was nothing prior to the fact um, that we know of to this date. Um, if if anybody has heard anything, then, then we haven't been, been privy of that information. How, how was your mother dealing with all this afterwards? I mean, I, I could only imagine as a child losing a parent, it's obviously horrific. I'm on the other side, parent losing a child, but with your mother and your father being so close, sounds like they had this complete wonderful relationship. And I, it's hard to understand what somebody's thinking, but I almost, I've heard many people say that they think their loved ones who t- ended up taking their lives just didn't want to talk about it because they didn't want to be a burden. They didn't want to have the other person worry, which obviously they weren't a burden. You mm-hmm. would worry. You want to do anything you can. It was almost like a sign of love that they didn't talk about it. And I think with Matt, that is sort of what he thought about us. Again, I'm trying to put the pieces of the, you know, the 1000 piece jigsaw puzzle (laughs) of suicide, trying to put it together. But I think that he felt obviously that we would have been hurt, that he would have thought like this. And obviously we would have been. And I think that the coroner that found Matt told us that she thought he was leaving us breadcrumbs to figure this out, that we would eventually figure this out, that he just was in pain from chronic depression and that we would eventually figure out that we would not, did not want to see him in pain and that we would obviously would reach a point. It could take years. We would understand why this happened. And my question, does your family, your mother, or anybody have any type of similar 
breadcrumbs or anything like that trying to figure out the thousand piece jigsaw puzzle? I mean, like, I mean, it's been eight years, so I think that we have definitely explored and thought about every situation. I think for my mom, um, it's especially hard. You know, she lost her partner of over 30 years, her lifetime. Um, so I think that while there, it, it's a consistent, constant battle with yourself of, you know, do you take yourself down that path of, of why and how and, and what could I have done differently or, or do you try to reframe it and hope that as a result of this, we can make something different happen. So I, I think that for my mom, I do think it's a constant battle. I do think that she will always have unanswered questions. I don't think that there was a, a breadcrumb trail per se. I think that, you know, they were very close. She knew he was hurting. She knew that, um, he wasn't himself, but he was also seeking the help, the appropriate help she thought, you know, um, to, to improve himself and to get him where to be and who would know better than an own physician, how to, um, really make sure that he was taking that seriously and seeking medical attention. And, and I think that all of those check marks were, were there. So from a, a textbook side, it was, it was very hard to see through that. Um, and I think even so her being so close and maybe that's the other thing is our inner circle is very close. And so maybe it was even harder for us to see that maybe someone from the outside could. Um, but I, I don't think that there was any kind of, you know, trail per se for her. You know, it sounds like your dad was obviously a super intellect and Matt was super intelligent also Plus, he was funny as hell. He was really funny. I mean, when I say funny, I mean, my last conversation with him the day before he passed, I had tears down my eyes laughing so hard. He always made me laugh. The last text I got from him, funny. If Whenever anybody talks about Matt, I actually ran into one of his old classmates this past week, and the same sentence is Matt Adler, comma, really funny guy. It's just mm-hmm. part of his MO. But looking back now, I think that almost was what I thought the humor was going to be a protective shield to protect him from the difficulties of life. In some ways, I think he was so smart, he used it as a mask to sort of mask what could have been happening. And my question, did you ever see anything like this with your father? Because again, your father was obviously extremely intelligent. Did he use humor? Uh, you know, constantly? well, the funny thing, or I guess not funny, ironically, but um, when people describe, we've been told some, when they talk about my sister, my brother and I, they say that my sister got my dad's dedication and determination. My brother got his heart and I got his wit. And so he absolutely had a good sense of humor. Um, and he was, you know, always on his feet thinking, you know, ahead, but I don't know that humor was his outlet as much. Um, I think that his outlet really may have been putting his energy into others. And I think that that's one thing, um, you know, he was fulfilled by giving back. His work was giving um, and the community and in the church that we went to, you know, everything that he did, he was giving back to others. And I, I think that if anything, he maybe overgave and to where he wasn't able to fulfill himself and we couldn't know 
or we didn't know because maybe that was masked a little bit by, you know, his intentions to always give. That's interesting you say that because, you know, I sometimes wonder about Matt because he always was putting himself out there to help friends that were in difficult situations. And I wonder if that took a toll on him. And with your father, that as a pediatrician, I mean, good Lord, I mean, he's dealing with distraught parents, children crying, trying to make them feel better. I mean, that's got to be a huge emotional toll. That's interesting you mentioned that. I Do you think that had any factor at all or... I mean, I, I do think, I think that that when someone gives so much and not gives to themselves, I mean, I think that's a struggle that a lot of people deal with. Um, we constantly tell my mom, make sure that you're fulfilling yourself and not just the needs of others because my mom is the same way. And so I absolutely think that that can, that can wear somebody down. And I don't know if that, you know, was an end all be all factor, but I do know how much he gave. Um, so it's an absolute possibility. That's very interesting. Um, I'd like to continue that point. Unfortunately, we've got to take a short break. And I'd like to, on the, after you come back from the break, ask you again, I know you talked a little bit about your journey, but I'd like to know as to how you feel you're living your life as a testament to your father, because your father just seems like an incredible human being. And obviously, you're very intelligent, very caring, very um, articulate, educated, wonderful daughter and person that your father would be very proud of. And I really, again, have to come back from the break, be very interested how you're taking those two concepts, dealing with your journey through grief and combining it with your life to be led as a testament to your father. So we'd like to take a short break and we'd like to come back to talk to Hannah about that after this short break. Again, thank you so much for listening. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7.
You are tuned into What My Son's Death by Suicide Taught Me About Life. If you'd like to send Marshall Adler a question or comment that can be addressed privately or on a future program, please send an email to marshalontheradio at gmail.com. That's marshalontheradio at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's program. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I'd like to ask Hannah, and I've been extremely impressed by Hannah's bravery, her sincerity, her kindness, her compassion, and telling the story about her, her father. But I'd like to ask her again, how her journey through grief, it sounds like what she's doing today with this opening up the talking about her father with the uh, podcast here is a very brave thing, but it's a, really a, a testament to how she's living a life they think her father would be really proud of. So my question is, how are you taking your path through grief with, you know, you've got a lot of your father in you and he seemed like he did so many wonderful things in his life and you're here continuing that. So I'd be really very interested in your thought process, how you mold those two things, your, your grief process and how you, have your father live through you and your actions on this planet? Of course. So um, my journey kind of began uh, right after my father passed away. I was actually living at home. I'd been living at home for about one month um, in between my journey of trying to apply to internships and get accepted. I was working um, in my small town. And when this happened, my sister moved home from Denver. My brother moved home from Atlanta. Um, they brought their significant others. And so it was, it was almost a comical situation. We had six grown adults in one house, um, <laughs> including four dogs, three cats and a fish tank. It sounds, like um, a, it sounds like a sitcom. Yes. It, it, <laughs> it was very interesting. Um, but it was also very important. And, and I, I don't even remember how many weeks it was. Um, but I was the first one to go back to work. And I honestly have time and time again given complete, um, I owe it basically to my boss at the time. Um, she had been checking in on me consistently, making sure that I was okay, you know, telling me don't worry about coming back and what anything you need. And I was telling her, you know, I kind of, I feel like if I don't come back, I'm never going to come back. And um, I also have said the same thing. Like I was so glad that I had graduated college because I almost don't know that I would have if it hadn't, if it had been any sooner. And so she came over to my house, met with my entire family and said, I think Hannah's ready to come back. And, you know, my family was very um, hesitant and protective and didn't want me to go back into an environment where maybe I could get hurt. I was working in healthcare in my very small town where my dad was the known pediatrician. I was working with children who went to my dad. Um, So it was a very, it was a tough situation, but it has completely molded me into who I was. Um, in the beginning, I had, you know, a very couple of rough, rough days um, where I, my, my mind wasn't even fully there. I was kind of just floating through the motions and I was very caught off guard. Um, I was having an interview with one of the patients and I was asking, um, going through my typical assessment. One of the questions was, you know, who is, who is your pediatrician? 
And they replied to me and said, Dr. Michaels, but he's dead now. And it caught me, they had no idea, you know, who I was. And it caught me so off guard that it, I almost went mute and I had to catch myself and I probably took a 10 second pause. I finished the assessment as quick as I could. And then I went to my boss's office just sobbing. Um, and a lot of people at work really didn't know what happened. At least they didn't hear it from me. Um, so I, you know, she was like, go home, take the day off. And I just had a lot of um, testing moments like that, that I think that really, really made an impact on how I am with others and how I, I'm constantly thinking about, you know, you always get told, be careful what you say. You don't know what someone's going through, but I, I take that to an extreme and really take it to home. Um, because another situation that I was in is, um, well, to get there, my, my supervisor at the time was, like I said, extremely helpful. I owe my entire career to her. Um, she helped me apply to internships. I also don't know that I would have gotten into an internship or even filled out the application had she not pushed me. Um, and I got accepted to a wonderful internship. And it was my first day in my clinical rotations. And I was working in the ICU. It was the first time I not only stepped foot in the hospital since I lost my dad, but it was the first time that I was in the intensive care unit. And um, it was a very overwhelming emotional feeling to be in that type of area. After the last time I was, was there, I lost my father. Um, so I was already battling that as an intern with a bunch of people who didn't know me in a town where I had nobody. And um, the patient that was my case was a middle-aged man who had attempted suicide and was in the ICU. So it hit extremely close to home. And um, again, it took me back a little bit, but it was also a very monumental moment in my career because the intensivist who was covering the case um, was completely disconnected. And so when we were rounding on the patient, you know, who's intubated, sedated, we round outside the patient rooms. However, there was no family at the bedside. Um, the interdisciplinary team discusses the, the patient and then the plan of care. And, you know, now from this side, I, I always take into account, you have, I have a different balance of the personal level with the professional level. And this intensivist was, was able to get rid of the personal level so much so that it was a very monotone, you know, this is a 53 year old male attempted suicide, you know, these are the labs, this is what's happening, this is the plan. And there was, there was no real connection, you know, and I didn't get to see the interaction with the family, but even with the group as, as the leader of the interdisciplinary team, you know, his approach to it kind of rubbed me the wrong way and it, it hurt me a little bit. And um, what it did is it, it really made a difference to me about the, the team that worked with my family and I um, and my dad when I was in the hospital um, with him is we had a nurse at bedside who went above and beyond for us. She switched shifts to be able to cover um, so that she was there when, when we were, she stayed overnight off shift to, to sit with us and just be with us. It was, people really showed their compassion. Um, and so in my own journey, I have really gone after being able to make that personal connection with patients and family members to let them know that I care on a deep level while still keeping it professional, you know, like not crossing that line, um, but really genuinely being involved. And um, I initially started my career 
in a consultation type of work where I worked at multiple facilities as the only dietitian, and I got involved in a, uh, a traumatic brain injury clinic and some psychiatric clinics. And I found that I really loved working with, you know, the neuro side and the psychiatric side that when your brain isn't working, how can I help you? Um, and so I fell in love with that. And um, I started to grow in management with that company. And I just got to a point where I didn't really have much work-life balance. So I took a demotion on myself and applied to be a frontline dietitian again at a hospital. And um, I had to work my way back up. And while doing so, I got the opportunity to cover the psychiatric floors again. So I felt that I was really giving back to a population that needed me. A lot of people are intimidated by the psychiatric population. Um, they, they don't relate. And to me, it was an opportunity. Every time I stepped in a room, I was, I understand that you were suicidal. I understand that you've lost 20 pounds and you can't eat because you don't feel good. You know, um, how can I help you? And how can I, I show you that I care and teach you the tools that you need to give your body the nutrients it needs to get better, you know? Um, so that really gave, gave me a purpose and um, I still missed the management side. And so I continued to grow and develop myself and um, I got to, you know, I got to one promotion where I was a manager at a smaller hospital. And most recently in the last year, I got this promotion to be a manager over 45 employees, 35 of them are dietitians. Um, so it's a really, it's, it's such an opportunity for me. And when I went back there, a lot of them were my peers. Um, you know, a couple years ago when I started back as a frontline dietitian. And so I knew that when I came into this force, I needed, I needed to bring my kind of story with me. My hospital is very big on, on your why, you know, why, why are you here? What is your why? Um, what brings you to do the work that you do? And so I kind of shared my why story. And another very interesting point that will connect this is my hospital just rebranded itself. And um, when it did that, it, we had a, a very big ceremony. You know, they brought us into a conference room all over across all the hospitals that were joining and gave us the same live viewing from the CEO of the hospital to ex ex explain the brand change. And um, one of the hospitals, a very small hospital in Northwest Georgia popped up on the screen. It was a hospital that my dad passed away at. Wow. And it's, it's a part of the company I'm working for now. And I, it was just such a big sign to me. Um, and so in this first meeting with my, my new staff that used to be my peers, I stood in front of them and just, they don't know, you know, the details. They don't know how my dad passed away. I haven't been bold enough to say that to them. Um, but I did stand in front of them and tell them that I, I lost my father at one of our sister hospitals. I just recently found that out. And, and my biggest why of wanting to be at this hospital and give back is bigger than, than that. It's, if I want to be a leader like my dad was, I, he, everyone that has ever met him, respected him. I have never heard even hearsay of anyone that didn't um, believe in what he did and what he stood for. And something that speaks volumes to the type of leader he was is my brother and my sister and I, we still get reached out to on our birthdays. They still call and see how we're doing. They, they're so, and it's been eight years since he passed away and I'm the daughter you know, and that was their boss nine years ago and they're still reaching out. And so I think that that shows volumes to who he was and the type of leader he was. And so that's what I really strive for. I think that beyond 
him and I sharing our work. Um, I think there's a lot of cool things we could have joined in on. I think there's a lot of things that um, he would be proud of and share with me and teach me a lot probably. Um, but I think the biggest thing that I find the most important is to be the type of leader that he was. That, and so that's what my journey is about. That is incredible. I mean, you really sound like your father's daughter. I mean, <laughs> your passion, your kindness, your empathy. I, you know, I, I've talked before that anybody that loses a loved one to suicide has got to make a life decision about their own life. And I am amazed at your grit, your determination, and your dedication to continue your father's kindness and his good work. And since Matt's passing, to me, the demarcation line between life and death has gotten very blurred because I sort of believe in afterlife much more than I ever did before. And again, I never met your father, but I sure the heck feel like I'm meeting him <laughs> now. Like I, I, I just feel like I'm talking to somebody from Amherst. <laughs> People don't know that Amherst is a high school I went to just north of Buffalo and Hannah's father was the next high school over sweet home and Amherst were just literally right next to each other. So there's a connection. I can just, you sound like you're, you're, you're from Buffalo. You're not. Your father is. <laughs> no, seriously, I'm not kidding. And you have a kindness that I've seen throughout my entire life of people from Buffalo. But you're not from Buffalo. Your father is. So I think in the big cosmic universe, there is, whether you want to call it an energy, whether you want to call it afterlife, whatever you want to call it, you've got it. The gifts your father had when he was on this planet you now have which obviously is probably the reason that you did this show again i cannot commend you enough for reaching out to me i feel like i've known you for years and years <laughs> and years and it's been less than a week and I know. seriously and you because we you and i have a bond what's that bond we both lost loved ones to suicide, we want to live our lives as a testament to them. They were wonderful, kind, caring people that just shows you the suicide epidemic that is hitting society is taking the best and the brightest from us. And the whole purpose of my life, and it sure the heck sounds like your life, is to do what we can to prevent this from happening to other people. And, and again, I cannot thank you enough. Unfortunately, I hate to say this, but we're running out of time. I could sit here and talk to you for hours because you're a fascinating person, <laughs> but seriously. And I'm amazed how you opened up, but I just think it's your father's blood running through your veins. And I just hope that the audience gets an appreciation of your determination and your relentless desire to live the best life that you can. And I guarantee you, your father's proud of you. So I just personally want to thank you for reaching out to me, number one, and number two, for being so brave to talk on this show 
about things that sounds like you really haven't talked publicly about for the entire time since your dad passed. And I just think this is something that your father is smiling upon you today and he'd be a very proud papa. He really would. Well, thank you. I want to thank you so much. And I want to thank all the listeners for listening today. And I'd just like to close by again stating that if you or a loved one is struggling, please contact a mental health or medical expert as soon as possible. If it's warranted, call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. And again, I'd like to personally thank Hannah so much for being on the show, but also more importantly, living the life she's living, which would make her father very, very, very proud. And Hannah, I want to thank you so much for being my guest. I really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you, Marshall. Thank you. And we'll thank you very much for listening and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you very, very much. Thank you for tuning into what my son's death by suicide taught me about life. We hope we've given you some insight concerning the issues of surviving and thriving after the suicide death of a loved one during our program today. Please join your host, Marshall Adler, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hope you have a good week.